Conversations with Sound Designers is a series of interviews with theatre sound designers about their career paths and the artistic process of theatrical sound design. This first series focuses on UK sound designers, including a wide range of artists, from those at the start of their career to established designers, from content-based shows to musicals, from the regions to West End and Broadway. This episode is kindly supported by the Association of Sound Designers, the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, and the National Theatre Sound Department. Melanie Wilson is a UK-based multidisciplinary performance maker. Her acclaimed work is founded on the contemporary interplay between sound art, experimental forms of composition, language and live performance. Melanie collaborates with artists and companies across theatre, film, opera and installation, creating highly crafted soundworks at varying scales, from main house auditoria to intimate podcasts. She's a long-term collaborator with director Katie Mitchell. Melanie is currently developing a choral work that uses AI to explore the human relationship with non-human species as part of Sound and Music's New Voices Composer programme. Melanie is also the chairperson of the Association of Sound Designers. Welcome, Melanie. Hello. When and what was your first connection with sound? Yes, so, um, I think that my first kind of real interaction with the properties of sound and the kind of mechanics of it was this very small tape player that I had when I was about 10. And it was like a real prop for the discovery of kind of identity and agency because I had a starship I remember I had a starship album and um being able to go into my room and put this tape on and independently have music albeit starship um (laughs) was just kind of like a whole it was like a miraculous thing and brilliantly it had a record you could record with it so I sort of graduated on from um listening to music to then kind of recording my family kind of talking um recording kind of animals and just sort of taking it out into the garden and recording kind of birds or wind or stuff um and I was completely fascinated by the capture of the world I suppose through sound and so then I started to make these I mean not particularly sophisticated but like these mixtapes really but out of like the world um which were kind of collages of my my parents kind of snatched conversation or like silly little rhymes that I did with my brother um or the cat purring or things like that and so yeah that was that was when I first kind of encountered the kind of the 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 potential of sound but also the kind of freedom somehow the 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 expression that you could um that was possible um from capturing it and then replaying it and molding it in a in a kind of story i suppose um, and were you were you using some sort of battery powered tape player at that point or did you have some sort of microphone dictaphone yeah. type thing no no it was just a really bad little tape player so it had like a tiny <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah a tiny little sort of mic yeah, yeah, just yeah, yeah. on the front of it so i would kind of take it around and um and actually my parents must have been really um patient and forgiving with me because it must i must have 
used many, many batteries because yeah. I don't, I mean, it wasn't a kind of plugged in thing. So yeah, right, right. I definitely remember taking it around a lot. <laughs> and was that at a time that you were you were learning music, you knew music, and how did that kind of interlace with the beginning of mm. that world of sound? I mean, so I suppose it's, it's weirdly kind of, it was kind of like a weirdly accidental thing, really. And I suppose like... Um, at that point, so I was really young then, maybe around 10 or so, but kind of quite soon after that, when I went to secondary school, I began then to do a lot of singing in choirs and I was playing kind of various instruments as well. Um, and I think that, you know, and I was really kind of into poetry and drama and English and writing and kind of generally being quite a creative person. So did you, when you went into Tren after school, did you did you go into music or did you go into performance or did you, was it something entirely different with that? Mm, so, I mean, so language and writing has also been really big. And in, in some ways, I suppose, writing and words were, are the kind of truest expression of what I do because it's the thing that comes out most naturally um, in, in some ways. Or, or kind of one form of expression. So I went and did drama and English at university, mm-hmm. um, and that was partly, I think I was sort of wanting to perhaps go to drama school because I was a performer as well, and I was that irritating child that was always, like, in the plays and stuff. Um, but my mum, I came from a quite an academic family, or at least my mum was very insistent that there had to be a... Um, a kind of, I suppose, traditional kind of education. Um, so, yeah, so I did a joint honours and, and kind of wrestling the joint honours my, into my family, family's permission was quite a quite an undertaking. But actually, the combination of drama and English, and I went to Aberystwyth University, which, is, which has such a great drama department because it's really practical, or at least it was when I was there, so it was a really, for me, a really great combination of kind of academic exploration and, and rigour and then really practical um, engagement with drama and theatre making. Um, I had these amazing um, teachers. So I had a kind of interaction with, um, you know, really great academic thinkers in drama, um, people like David Raby. And then I had kind of the practitioners of um, Ian Morgan and Firenze Gidi and um, Mike Pearson from the brilliant Welsh company Brithgorf. And they, that, that, that company had such a kind of, that way of like large scale site specific devised approaches, really political kind of theatre making had such a big impact on me. And also that was a lot of what we were learning at, it was also kind of allied to through Ian Morgan, Song of the Goats from Poland as well. So very kind of physical um, theatre as well. Um, so there was lots of there was lots of like um, there was a, it was a real kind of early emphasis on making work actually, and sounds and music wasn't really it was in there, but it wasn't really one of the technologies I suppose that I was getting to grips with as an early artist so I left um, Aberystwyth and then I went to do do a master's in advanced theatre practice at Central Um, and that was kind of me putting my uh, flag in the sand I suppose Mm -hmm. of like this is what I 
I'm really serious about kind of exploring theatre as a as a as an art form. Yeah. Um, so uh, once when I was doing the course at Central, and I'm not sure if it's still the same, but you you had a kind of main strand that you explored. So for me, that was performance, and then you had a a secondary strand that you could explore, and for me, that was sound. Um, so I suppose just to maybe like step back a bit in terms of how sound and music kind of factored into that. I really can't, uh, I always kind of, I don't I, I don't want to underestimate, or I, ca- I can't really um, undersell the impact that um, free parties and raving had on me because it was um, that kind of uh, interaction with like the electronic, electronic music yeah. and like big free parties which happened a lot in Aberystwyth just had a massive a massive influence on me I was I became really um from having only really been um kind of exposed to kind of choral music and um being kind of a soloist in kind of cathedral settings and things yeah. at school and then then beginning to discover um you know, indie music in the 90s and um, and then particularly all of the catalogue of Walt Records had, you know, that was yeah. just my absolute love. Um, and so I was kind of bringing all of that real interest into par- the party scene and the music of that and the real experiential kind of sense of music and sound physically when you're in those yeah, kind of absolutely. situations. Um that just had that was just really important it was so kind of life-giving um and i suppose perhaps if i think about it now that maps onto all of that really dynamic physical work that was happening that we were being taught in aberystwyth you know devising um where there was often like really full-on soundtracks as well and we were really being encouraged to be like um really quite industrial and quite kind of um uh kind of rule breaking I suppose or kind of multidisciplinary at least um, in the way that we thought about music it, it, it strikes me that there's a there's a kind of similarity as well between the the scale and the epicness the potential scale and epicness of choral work mm. and of club music in that way yeah. very different ends of the spectrum obviously but but yeah. the scale of what it is and the impact that it can have on you yeah and feels it's perhaps like a similar experience totally yeah because it's they're both really ecstatic mm-hmm. and they're hugely cathartic yeah. and one of them is you know choral music is kind of coils itself and is very kind of contained but it's always kind of moving up or making space and it's in conversation with architecture a lot and it's very emotional um and it's exactly the same when you're in a club as well mm-hmm. or when you're in a kind of field as it was mostly in Aberystwyth. <laughs> um it has you have that collective feeling that live experience of other people in space listening to to music being shaped um also there is something yeah like with the kind of spatial dynamic of how choral music sounds in these beautiful kind of old spaces um there is a kind of bodily engagement in the same way that there is yeah. in 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 kind of dance music. So, when did that start to kind of and when and how did that start to formulate itself in professional work for you? Mm. So, um, 
Pretty much as soon as I left Central, I formed a company with two other people, um, not actually people that I'd been at Central with, though we were all kind of allied to each other and in touch with each other. Um, so when I was at Central, there, we, there was work that was done. One of the kind of off-site venues was the Lion and Unicorn pub in mm-hmm. Kentish Town. Um, and so immediately after leaving Central, I became part of this kind of group that did this topical news show every week um, with kind of interaction from the audience. And it was very absurd and kind of surreal um, and funny, but also odd. Um, And so I kind of immediately had this sort of access point into putting stuff in front of an audience that was really um, very rough and very responsive um, and was quite devised and and very collaborative. So I sort of was lucky enough to sort of immediately dip my toe in. And then out of that came this company, um, which kind of turned into Patter Theatre Company, um, which was with Peter Arnold and Emma Benson. And we really quickly kind of were able to make a relationship with um, Battersea Arts Centre Mm -hmm. and became supported artists, a kind of young company of supported artists. so I think that was perhaps maybe two years after I'd left Central. So I was kind of um, being a waitress mm-hmm. and doing, you know, extras, extra work and doing all of the other stuff that you have to do to survive in London. Um, but doing this show every week and then developing work with Pata. And um, the BAC was a massive part of, of my um my biography, really. I think if it hadn't have been for that supported artist programme, I, I just don't... Yeah, it would have been very different for me. And that was when Tom Morris was there yeah. and Louise Blackwell and Kate McGrath, who then formed the Fuel, the yeah. producing company. Um, so, so we were beginning... So we were kind of finding our feet as a company. We made... Um, and and I was performing and devising and writing that with Peter and Emma, but I was also then beginning to create soundtracks um, uh, for, for our work. And Peter was a is a visual artist and designer, so we were all doing lots of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you'd upscaled from your little tape recorder with the built-in mic by this point. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think also I was like quite lucky actually that at just about that time mac laptops became like a little bit more user friendly and so the kind of um i was you know obviously this is i don't endorse this but i had a cracked version of logic um (laughs) you know there's uh, that happens um and uh yeah the, the the kind of laptop computing and mac was like just at the dawn of like what 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 it is now um and so it was really it was becoming really easy to kind of create um collages and soundtracks and um and i was doing that a lot through kind of recording and sampling Mm -hmm. and so you know we're definitely looking back to the 10 year old tape recorder Mm. um in terms of um the, the kind of audio content. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I was able to multi-track those things and kind of create um, collage kind of um, concrete kind of yeah. um, sound scores for our, for our stuff. Um, and were you aware of other 
other people working in a similar way with sound at that point? Did you, was that musicians or sound designers or people that sit in the intersection? That's a really great question. I don't think I even knew what a sound designer was at that point. I hadn't really come across the term, or maybe if I had, I hadn't really associated it with what I was up to. Um, I think I was more influenced by music and... uh, and, you know, at that time, I was kind of in a group of artists and musicians in London who were um, like startup companies making kind of websites and electronic musicians and visual artists. And there was a whole bunch of people at St. Martin's. Mm. And it was like a real mix of people kind of in different artistic realms. So I think I was much more influenced by... Yeah, what my friends were doing, and they were doing a lot of um, a lot of of kind of music that was based on um, real audio. So, like no synths, they were like really anti that, and everything has to be real and kind of coming from real the world. Yeah. Um, but like really beautiful and totally danceable, kind of convincing kind of music, um, but really experimental as well. And I think around, you know, I sort of began to get into things like um, Basic Channel and Nurse With Wound and those kind of really experimental kind of noise Mm -hmm. bands. Um, Perhaps also, ah, this is a thing. I, around that time, I saw Laurie Anderson at the Mm -hmm. Barbican and I was just like, whoa, she's (laughs) so amazing. Yeah. Um, So she had a massive impact on me because it, it was... Uh, she was su- such a fascinating creature because she was like, "Oh wow, look, you can you can be a you can be a poet and you can perform sound on stage and you can have this lovely direct relationship with an audience." It's all of these things that I was really yeah, kind of yeah. interested in. It's all seemed to kind of coalesce in this one human. Um, so yeah, that was a that was a kind of you know like amazing <laughs> moment of like recognition. Because it sounds like, it sounds like to me, you you are and always were an artist who found sound as a medium of expression. Whereas mm. it, I think there's a lot of contemporary sound designers who worked with sound and then found an artistic form within it as a secondary mm. or a de- de- developmental consequence of that, really. And it, mm. it feels somewhat that you're you've done the reverse of that. Yeah, I think that's probably true, and and probably because. The thing I'm connecting with is kind of the the sense is like emotion and texture and um, uh, like sound as sculpture really mm. is kind of a plastic kind of um, moldable uh, expression for psychology but for emotion as well. So it's it's always from a um, a deeply felt kind of origin point that I sort of yeah. reach towards sound yeah. or that sound expresses something for me in that way. Um, and then everything is in service of that of that set of feelings. So kind of rooting through logic and working out how that worked mm. as a kind of, you know, first, first kind of contact, it was all, it was a very like sketchy thing uh, in the sense of like, oh, look, I can import all these files and I can layer them and I can 
process them in this way and repeat them and it just felt really sculptural to me mm-hmm. like I wish there was a way of being more kind of tactile with computers somehow yeah. but um it was so compelling that that first kind of year of beginning to mold with yeah. logic and and still to this day I'm absolutely know there's loads about logic that I don't understand because I haven't quite found my way into it because I'm really driven by a set of feelings yeah. or a set of ideas rather than um, a kind of technical curiosity, as you yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. And it, it feels like, so at that time you were making a lot of stuff yourself, uh, mm. you, were, you were doing things. When was the first time that a kind of, there was a slightly more conventional knock at the door from theatre? Like when was the first mm. time that, that somebody kind of came and said, we're, we're, we're doing this show in a theatre will you come and work with us as a sound artist or a sound designer at that point how does that evolve um I do feel a little bit like I had a slight kind of rags to riches opportunity in that because I was working creating creating work with my company and then as a solo artist in the you know subsidized fringe experimental realms of theatre and then I was working doing the soundtrack for Again, like as, a, as an artist, as a sound artist, for an installation that Fuel had um, put together for the Women of the World Festival at Southbank mm. Centre. And um, it was this beautiful garden that was um, designed by Lizzie Clacken. And loads of um, artists came and kind of spoke about inspiring women to them. And Katie Mitchell was one of them. Mm. And I, I don't know why, but... Um, well, I do know why. She, she needed somebody to work on a project and some, something had fallen through with, with one of her other collaborators. So she extended this invitation to me. Um, as a response to that As a response to being part of that, yeah, yeah. that work. Um, and which was really brave of her, I suppose, because I, I don't know how much she really knew about what I did. But um, then I was just transported into the world of large large scale theater yeah. um which was the steepest learning curve ever <laughs> um but i still then i didn't really understand what i was i mean i didn't understand what i was doing but i didn't really understand what my role was you know because yeah. i it's, even then i didn't think i was a sound designer um and actually probably what i was was an associate sound designer but because gareth fry was the was working on that project but Gareth just wasn't able to be there very much because he had kind of schedule clashes so um so I really just kind of created the sound mm. score for the, for the for the work and Gareth was able to kind of come in and out a couple of times but was you know really had his hands really full um but I didn't I I I didn't think of being a sound designer I thought of I was being a collaborator mm. Um, because that's really the only way I knew how to be in a room with other people was mm. in this kind of collaborative way. And and, and I my um, responsibility was the sound, um, but I considered myself to be particularly, like, equal, I suppose. Um, and it's really only kind of continuing over time in that world that I have become then aware of the the structures and the the hierarchies and the categories. But I suppose that first show with Katie was me just doing the thing that I did with yeah. Pato, which was just trying stuff, chucking things in. Katie, neat, 
works with sound a lot in her process, mm-hmm. so it just felt really familiar. We were just trying stuff out. Um, and... Yeah, and then and then it's like the slow dawning, really, of what you're getting yourself into. But it was a very accidental beginning. And for me, it felt like, in terms of like being a kind of strict sound designer, how you might kind of um, term like that job. But I, I certainly didn't think I, and now I will... I will look for work as yeah. a sound designer. It was a, it was a, a, as a kind of um, as a result of being a sound making theatre maker. Presumably, the uh, the collaborative relationship that we you were used to, and and what you found began to find in theatre, and, and perhaps have, have continued to find under the hierarchical structures, mm. is very different um, from from how you started working and from how mm. you work on your own. Mm. How do you how do you found the kind of how do you found those different versions of collaboration? It's such a complex question, and it's ch- it changes and it is changing for me. I think when I first began to be in the more mainstream world, it was just a massive, brilliant ride, and it was so like I was just learning, like my head was exploding. But I still felt like um, an artist, like I was an artist, and I and I and I felt like I, I suppose I didn't, I wasn't really kind of necessarily adapting anything that I was doing overtly. But as I've kind of, as I kind, as the years went by, and I was working on these, on Katie's projects, and then other people were asking me to do their projects um, as a result of seeing that that Katie work and then there was a lot of stuff in Europe as well which was really great and exciting but I suppose I began to kind of feel a bit um uh kind of I feel the strictures of what it means to be a sound designer in that world Mm. because I began to kind of see how I suppose the hardest thing for me was going from is the authorship mm-hmm. and the credit. I mean, I, by credit, I don't mean like, well, let me explain. Um, I, I suppose I'd come from a place where, a devising place, a collaborative place where it didn't really matter who was responsible for what. There wasn't really hierarchy. It wasn't like lighting was just above sound or mm-hmm. um, the director was like the uber um last word person yeah. it was like you know there was a kind of very collective sense of just making and as i kind of worked more in the mainstream i began to sort of see i began to experience how people would t- i would come out of one room work with a group of collaborators who i'd maybe i'd be doing a week of r&d on my project mm. with people and we and we'd be speaking to each other in one way and then I'd go the next week into a room a rehearsal room and be spoken to in a completely different Mm -hmm. way and sometimes in a really um not a nice you know not a way that made me feel like I was being spoken to with like equality I suppose Mm. like I I began to be aware that there was this hierarchy that Mm. you know that that lighting is just a little bit above sound and sound is always at the bottom of the poster and and and, oh I don't get paid as much as other people what that's that's stupid (laughs) um 
Yeah. And so that was that 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 things began to sour a bit for me there yeah. because I just felt, oh, hang on, like I I'm so privileged to be able to work in this on these projects because creatively and artistically they are so feeding. But I don't like feeling like I'm less than the other people mm-hmm. in the room and and I don't feel less than other people in the room. So I'm going to continue to talk to them in yeah. the way in the way that I would to anyone else. But then does that make me um, then then you're conscious of being a little bit sticky outy yeah. and a little bit like uh, unconventional and that's not a nice feeling either yeah. and did you did you find that it was the attitudes to the kind of conventionality and the hierarchy were different in Europe to the UK as well or was was that was there more of a similarity there I mean I think yeah I think in Europe it's different it's just different but I mean, so case in point, QLab, right, is a really great way of understanding how Europe and the UK are different. So in in Europe, the sound operator is the sound designer often. Mm. So they mix with the with Ableton a lot and the desk. Where and so we come from the UK with QLab, which programs every infinitesimal bit of programming out of that or into it, creating this beautiful architecture which is exactly the same every time there's no ability for the operator to kind of make choices Mm -hmm. on the night um and there's good and bad things about both of those but i think in in europe the sound that it feels like sound design is just really not it's not seen in the same way it's it feels like it's well, I, I don't know if I can speak with authority about this, really, because mm. I'm coming with a UK company into German houses and we're all kind of British and working in a way yeah. that, and we're requiring them to work in our way. So yeah. in some ways it's harder. It's hard to kind of um, really know the, the ins and outs of that. But. I think it's interesting what you say. I mean, my understanding of my limited experience with it, but but talking to other people is, is it's as a sound designer, you work much more like a musician would mm-hmm. within the process. Mm-hmm. And there's, and there's still a hierarchy, but the hierarchy is different mm-hmm. to, and there is, the teams aren't kind of as big because as you say, you're interesting, you're creating it, you're, you're mm-hmm. generating the, the content yourself and interacting with it. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's, it's just how those kind of, there's, I guess there's very different hierarchies and collaboration mm-hmm. models therefore, because of all of those things. Yeah, I'd say that. Yeah, I'd say that was true. I, I suppose it also kind of brings in the question of like, what is sound and what's music? Mm-hmm. So for me, this is a really tricky one because my aesthetic is that sound is often music to me. Mm. And this is a really hard one in theatre, I think, because um, because I'm essentially a musician, really. Like, mm. I have a style and um, I'm not able to... I'm really going to do that thing and pretty much across every project that I work on. And if that's the kind of aesthetic that you want to need, then I'm your woman. Mm. But I'm really not able to kind of whisk up a kind of, um, you know, uh, string quartet for the parlour. Um, yep. It's always going to be, um, you know, it's always going to be abstract. It's always going to be um, minimal, and you know, it's it's always going to have quite a lot of bass and darkness to it, and edge to it. You know, there's always there's a style. Yeah. And so for me, but for me, that's really mu- there's a lot of music in that. And that, if I was releasing an album, mm. then 
I would be releasing a lot of the, the stuff I make for theatre under the guise of, a, of an album, of, mm. mu- of, a, of, a, of a body of music. And so it becomes tricky in that moment to have conversations with people about what, sa- what is sound design and what is composing because there's a... I mean, this is my perception anyway. I'm sure that other people perhaps navigate this better to, than I do, but... I feel like there's a lot of creative content, a lot of compositional work that goes into sound design. There's often seen as just like um, uh, sound effects. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's not that at all. It's like, it's a score. Um, and I think that can be a tricky convers. You know, it's it's a conversation that you have with directors as well, but with kind of producers or you know, to have that kind of conversation about, I suppose, you know, to to return back to the genesis of the sound design, I suppose it became, to me, I became, I was developing as a composer all the while, but I was still being, and I was feeling very creative and feeling very authored. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I was creating a lot of content that was becoming much, much more compositional but I was still in like the box of like sound sound designer just providing the sound effects mm. um, or, or feeling like that was mm. um, how, how my work was being categorized. And I was really wanting always to have conversations about expanding um, the language and the understanding of what sound in theater means. I mean, it's just like, you know, any kind of, theatre making practice we're always trying to push at the you know what naturalism means on stage or um you know or what a concert is really um you know that's another whole kind of interesting conversation about what's concert what's performed Mm -hmm. concert what's theatre etc um so this is a really interesting question for me as well and and became a became uh, a bit more like ooh, tricky to navigate because I felt more and more as I was developing through Katie's work, like I was becoming a composer and therefore then needing to have conversations about like crediting of that and um, payment for that, especially with Katie's work, which requires you to be there the whole time. Yeah. And how, and how does that then work on uh, on the occasions when you've got um, more than one person in that either sound or compositional role presumably you've worked in a situation where you've had sound designers have you ever worked in the situation where you've got composer and you've been sitting as sound designer like how mm. does that then further shift those those uh, mm. challenges yeah so I haven't really collaborated with a lot of composers but through Katie's work I've collaborated with Paul Clark um, who is fantastic and very patient um, and really helped me actually to um, develop, has helped me enormously to develop and to kind of tighten the screws on what I'm up to. But in the process of developing, Paul has a very open mind about what is music and what is sound, and so does Katie, and so do I. So it's all kind of really great mm. dynamic. Um, but I definitely began to step on his toes a bit, I think. Not that he ever let me feel that, but I but I felt like I was like chafing at well, I want more composition. This is with him as a composer a composer and you as a sound designer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And he was and and he I mean he's just such an amazing teacher. So he was always making space for whatever 
Uh, however we we kind of created the work but I but I definitely and so I've been really lucky because he has a really open mind Mm. and is extremely um flexible and fluent in across many different genres so my relationship with the composer is really has really been kind of forged in that relationship with Paul but I have kind of I have had experience with my own projects of co-composing, and that's really hard because it kind of makes me realize how you know f- the the kind of the process that you go on in conceiving an aesthetic and a narrative for music when you're composing. It's really it's personal, and you. And you need to kind of, um, there's an, a kind of artistic urge to want to unfold that in the way that feels right for you. And it's really hard to, to collaborate with a sound designer, I think, when they are wanting to unfold themselves in a creative way, in a, in a kind of compositional way that perhaps... Uh, maps too much onto what you're trying to do and with Paul it that was really fluent we unfolded ourselves and it was like a beautiful mess or kind of really great kind of um uh multi-layered world in some other moments that's been really challenging Mm -hmm. because then you have because it's a really intense process conceiving and writing music and it's deep you know it's deeply personal and and it involves um a lot of trust and time and sometimes when you're on a project by project basis you don't have the space or time to really um bond with people um and you just well you have to trust you have to kind of throw yourself into that but it but i suppose that when i've seen other people do it brilliantly is where there's a really clear delineation of who's doing what yeah i, I agree i think that's the key yeah and I think that's why I'm a bit of a kind of challenge, I think, as a sound designer, increasingly so. Not that I, I, I'm sort of anticipating this about myself because I not only am extremely generative, but I think of myself as a composer, even if I'm um, being asked to be a sound designer. Mm. And that, that causes quite, uh, that's a little bit of a, that that just feels quite tricky, I think, for me personally. But I think that's because I just have such a kind of artist brain. Mm. I think you're right. I think it's, in my experience and my observation, it's very much about clear delineation, mm. about communication, and about openness that when you do spill into each other's areas, there's room for people to do that and to see which is the best idea mm. and 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 when it's when I've observed it not working so well it's when ego comes into the room where people mm. are trying to defend and prove their worth within mm-hmm. a space yeah. which of course isn't helpful in mm. any performance space but is a perfectly natural human reaction mm. and and perhaps even more so when you're working with people for the first time or maybe a director for the first time and you're mm. wanting to or a producer and you're wanting to demonstrate what you're capable of definitely definitely because you know as we talked about before these rooms are very hierarchical Mm. and you know there's there's if you're a creative person you're working in quite strict kind of boundaries aren't you so there's 
there's quite a lot of pressure that you're dealing with or quite a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of kind of pressures on all aspects of kind of navigating yourself in that building, in that team, in that project. And these all kind of come to bear on these really intense weeks of, mm. of work. You spoke a little bit about um, your style mm. uh, and, and about you, how you have a kind of compositional style. Can you talk a little bit about your taste? I'm interested to know where does that come from and how does that sit with style? I've, I'm always interested in... I'm quite interested in this idea of, of um, artists who... Many artists I know see a style they like and try and replicate that style. Mm. And I think the smart thing is to see a style you like and go, that's great, but that's not what I can do when I do this yeah. other thing. Um, where, where does your... yeah? How does your style relate to your taste so for me it's really about light and dark i think it and it's also about what um what it means to be in a space with people for an evening or an hour and for me ultimately i see performance as being a collective ritualistic ultimately cathartic experience Mm. so my work tends towards you know and here we're talking we can reference back to kind of choral music and and dance music as well my my work tends to kind of be um go on a real journey from darkness into light mm. and i and i don't i i can't really point towards one artist or set of artists that i think oh that's it yeah but i suppose you know, there's so there's uh, I don't know if you know the writer Mark Fisher. He um, he's a kind of theorist, um, and he has this kind of concept of hauntology, which is the um, the the sort of like animation of it, it's it, it maps across music and architecture and literature and sound and space and cities, but it's sort of about haunting, like the the this kind of sense of being haunted by memory by um, you know, by history and kind of remnants and what's left and 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 how we read history in 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 things or or the past. Um, so there's a kind of divination process um, that he kind of that's my word actually, but but that he, that feels kind of very true about his theories. And I suppose that to me feels like the strongest link of how I would describe what I'm up to when I'm making sound. Um, <laughs> Of course, there's like, you know, I said before, there's like basic channel, you know, the, that kind of very minimal kind of techno kind of sound. Um, there's, you know, there's Meredith Monk. Um, there's Holly Herndon. You know, there's 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 people whose work I really, really admire. But I guess there's a... Yeah, again, maybe let's return to the 10-year-old tape recorder. It's really about yeah. like listening to the things around you. I suppose the first moment that I layered a piece of music or like at the tail of an echo of something over the top of like some traffic. Mm-hmm. And I thought, mm-hmm. whoa, there's a space there. There's something's <laughs> opened up there. And that's so thrilling to me. Um, so I think it's really like that. It's really about listening to the world and the musicality in the world and tuning into that and the kind of the pathos of it, the fragility of it, 
the the haunt the haunting of of of, mm. of ourselves by the world around us. Um, something deeply atmospheric, you know, ambient music gets yeah. such a bad rap because it just seems like <laughs> elevator music. But there is something really incredibly powerful and cathartic about ambient sound. Yeah. It's about, yeah, space and memory and and how to kind of get at those, that sense of like time opening up and, and then contracting in. And I love doing that in theatre. Mm. Um opening up spaces, you know, building rhythms, crashing, taking them down again. I absolutely love the most tiny, tiny, almost beyond below the border of hearing kind of mm. stuff that builds. And then I love really, really loud, <laughs> obnoxious sound. I love distortion. Um, so it's just this like visceral poetics of trying to kind of touch sound or speak through sound. And also, I haven't thought about this for ages, but like I was, I did become aware when I was starting to make sound that as a quite gently spoken woman, you can be really, really aggressive with yeah. sound in yeah, a way yeah, that you yeah. just can't be when you're yeah. this. Yeah. Um, yeah, like clothing or like yeah. styling or, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a real tool. Yeah. yeah. I lo and I love that. I love... I love surprising people with the things that I make <laughs> when they first meet me or, mm. or whatever. That's really, really pleasing. Um, and what about uh, what about technology within your practice? Because you talked uh, in the uh, in the intro, we talked a little bit about the AI project that mm. you're working on. You talked a little bit about the kind of emergence of technology in the way that we understand it as a, a as as an everyday tool now. How does your relationship with technology and the way that you make work, where are you? Because you also talked about at one point working without, um, with all completely natural sound. Like, where do you sit with all of those things? I mean, so, yeah, so the, the use of machine learning, um, uh, which is the kind of recent, the recent engagement, um, was because I had this particular kind of idea that I wanted to try to teach I wanted to teach an artificial intelligence um, how to create a hybrid voice that was composed of kind of animal and human. And I wanted to do that because I wanted to create this work that engaged with species extinction and, and this kind of very fragile relationship that we have with non-human species that are us and of us and around us, but that mm. we really exploit or dismiss um, or sometimes use in really positive ways. Um, and so I... There's something really um, there's something really interesting about the process of engaging with artificial intelligence, as much as as the output of it actually. So you go through these really lengthy um, periods of training it for like weeks, and when I say training it, I'm not doing that training. Okay. Um, so the critical thing about all of this is that. I collaborated with um, Pris the Prism Lab at RNCM in Manchester, where they have this particular machine. It's a deep learning machine, so it's incredibly powerful. And um, it runs this recurrent neural network, um, which essentially can listen to audio, actual audio as opposed to MIDI, mm -hmm. um, and uh, learn, learn. So I gave it, we gave, I, curated a kind of palette of um, a set of different animals vocalities and then I composed music in response to that um, those animals and then we fed 
that neural network all of that information and over time it kind of responded hmm. and then it was very chaotic and kind of slightly terrifying so we trained it again <laughs> on a slightly different parameters um, actually the parameters were the same but the material was a lot more kind of consolidated and focused and so for me the use again the use of technology is about it's not really about um I really want to know about machine learning. It's about, I really want to know what happens when an AI tries to speak or tries to vocalize human animal hybrids. Mm. And I, be, you know, over the last few years, I've been doing lots of reading and um, listening and, you know, obviously following the work of people like Holly Herndon, who, who is just doing, so, and Matt Dryhurst, who are doing such amazing work with AI. And so it was it, it was like the basis of a set of research of how to create a compositional tactic for how to create this new piece of work. Um, and luckily for me, because machine learning is so bonkers com complex, I did have this lovely opportunity to kind of be very creative and conceptual and then give all of the programming <laughs> to somebody else. Um so so that that engage so that has been like a fantastic engagement with like amazing kind of contemporary technology that I just haven't had to tangle with at all. <laughs> um, but I suppose in in the sense of like t you know touching the buttons, I've really never been scared of technology for some reason. Mm. Um, it doesn't overface me if I don't if I don't understand how to use it, I just don't. I do, it doesn't bother me. I'll ask someone how to do that, yeah. but it doesn't. It doesn't stop me from, or you know. And I'm and I'm really happy. And I say this to kind of younger practitioners who are saying, "But how do I become a sound designer if I don't know how to uh, balance a system or do yeah. delays and stuff?" And I say, "I don't know how to do that. I mean, I at a pinch I do, but I I I don't have to do that because I can work with other people." who can do that and that's 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 the shape of who i am and there are other sound designers who absolutely create content amazing scores and can brilliantly balance the system and do delays and all the rest of it and and they that's their practice and but i feel very collaborative about technology if i if i if I can, if I'm interested in the in the effects of it, or if I'm interested in its properties, for me, the most exciting thing is the engagement and the and the kind of outcome from that. So I'm not going, uh, and and so I will ask somebody to help me with that. Mm. Yeah, it's it's something it's, it's something else we've covered in a number of these other podcasts in this series. It, it, is that, and I think it's really important just to kind of recognize that is that as a sound designer it's very rare that you will be exceptional at all of those yeah. parts of content creation of musicality of system yeah. setting up of being able to to deal with radio mics about and, and actually it's about everybody has their strength and it's about complementing your team with those things and, and and appreciating your own value no matter how kind of wide or narrow that beam is it's 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 yeah. about appreciating your own value and being content with that and all you know always being happy to learn more and and interested to learn more but yeah. it's not necessary to know everything about everything yeah definitely and I think that's a skill that you learn as well in terms of how you talk about that mm. because perhaps when I started I was very 
conscious of the fact that I didn't know how to do certain things. And that really stressed me. And so I'd keep quiet about that. Mm. But I would ask people how to do that. But it took a long time for me to have converse, initial conversations with directors or producers and, and say, um, this project sounds incredible. And, and it immediately makes me think about like this set of sounds or this mm. kind of narrative or... And, and and you want to do like lots of vocal processing live and that's not something I know how to do very well, but mm. I do know how to do this. So if you're interested in collaborating, and I'm really interested in collaborating because this is an amazing project, this is what I can do, but I can't do that. So we'd have to collaborate yeah, with yeah. someone else. Yeah. But it takes a really long time to be yeah. confident enough to say that. And perhaps for a while I thought, or well, maybe I should just get really great at engineering. Yeah. But then I, it's just not enough hours in the day. And my priority is like artistic excellence, I suppose. Mm. Um, so I've chosen to kind of keep, uh, keep developing as a kind of, as a, as a kind of, as a creator, as opposed to a technologist. Um, I guess that's why in a recording studio, you know, you have a recording engineer, or several recording engineers, you have a producer or a couple of producers, you have an orchestra, you have a, you know, you, you yeah, get yeah. people who are really good at doing all of those things. Yeah, definitely. Does the, uh, in terms of technology then, does are there certain areas of it? I wonder if, if things, think, things that give you the creative, the clearer creative opportunity rather than the more technical creative opportunity is that something that you're a bit more engaged and interested in like the mm. kind of immersive world of sound which is is very big at the moment and like the technology behind that and or generation of stuff mm. so when uh, maybe it's kind of um let's think possibly about 10 years ago i bought a pair of binaural um, those little binaural ones that kind of mm -hmm. uh, mics that sit above your ear, and I went through a phase of like developing as a as a maker, and making a lot of work for kind of headphones, walking yeah. stuff, and the discovery of binaural was just like an amazing world of storytelling, and so I I kind of went through this process of making like binaural kind of surround sensations, walking tours um, uh, and, and, and like one-on-one -on -one kind of listening experiences. And then I also kind of did a, a kind of bespoke, I, I made a, a, a piece about dementia actually, and it was, um, it had a kind of 12.2 surround um, system. Um, and I was really into kind of placing the audience physically in the centre of the listening experience. Um, and then I sort of came out the other side of that and became much more, I suppose, like then I, I was transitioning a lot more then into like writing for mute, for singers. And that's kind of really where I'm at now. So the my interest in technology has slightly receded just mm. for the moment mm. Because I'm so invested in what humans sound like in a space now um, and writing that music for them to sing. Um, and I and I know that the, the kind of that that kind of like all of that um, all of that engineering and processing and and spatialization of those voices is going to come back into the fore when when these you know 
project when this kind of especially this AI project is kind of coming to fruition. Yeah. But I think I'm just at the moment less enamored by the kind of oh it's not I'm not enamored by it but I'm I sort of used binaural techniques and surround as a real phase of my development mm-hmm. and and yeah I I guess maybe I'd just reiterate that that kind of point that we spoke about before of what what is the burning you know what's the thing that needs to be expressed in terms of story at this moment and what what are the means and I suppose like in lieu of like an amazing Genelec speaker array now I have actual humans doing that mm. so yeah. my technology of choice is the human at the moment yeah I think yeah and I think that's you know, when, when you have a, a range of experiences over a period of time, seeing the development of of both taste and technology and how you move through various artistic processes, very much in the same way that fine artists do over a long period of time, mm-hmm. is uh, it, it, is what it feels like you're kind of, you've drawn out for us um, today with, the, you know, starting from the tape machine, talking about through the binaural, talking about how your sound work and your own theatre practice work moved into more conventional formats of theatre and where you are now with the music. Mm. Have you got any ideas of, uh, of thoughts about where you'd like to move forward to, what ambition mm. you, you you have, and and whether that's more personal, uh, individual, or whether that's collaborative and in a theatre sense? Hmm. I'm really, I'm really chafing actually at the moment about like what is theatre, what's it for. I mean, perhaps we're all all doing that a little bit now, but I think I possibly had this a little bit before the pandemic too. Um, I I feel like I've always had a bit of an ambivalent relationship with theatre, architecture, and the portraiture of the proscenium arch. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about it that is incredibly satisfying and also really um, marooning for me. Um, and so I think having come out of that very immersive phase and then I went into, and now going into more music, I think perhaps there's a, there's an engagement that I'm trying to have at the moment with like, um, what the space between theatre and concert looks like. Um, there's lots of like really amazing, like Anna Meredith, for instance, there's lots of really amazing contemporary musicians and contemporary composers who are making work that's really performative. And so I think I'm kind of coming at it from the other way, really. I'm trying to kind of imagine new spaces for listening which aren't the concert situation and aren't theatre which is you know complicated Mm. um so i'm quite interested in space and where listening happens um i think i'm also becoming really interested in movement as well and how how sound how how potentially the kind of choreo, a choreographic relation i mean i always think about how sound is quite choreographic in 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 the way that it interacts with image but perhaps i'm sort of becoming more or i'm becoming quite interested in how the human body embodies sound and 
or how it kind of takes on another expression or has an alliance with it. This isn't work that I've really begun. It's kind of sensations I'm moving towards. Um, but I suppose, I suppose there's a um, there's this kind of there's this like multiple identity work that I haven't quite leveraged yet, which is this um, this kind of meeting point between the spoken voice, the sung voice, the ritual, the concert, the theatre, something which has a visual element to it, but that is absolutely um, gives dignity to listening as well. Mm, mm, mm. Um there's this 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 path I'm trying to kind of work my way towards, and and I and I appreciate this does sound quite sort of abstract, really, but um, this I'm just really I think if I was going to like stand for anything, it would be the absolute importance of listening and 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 the the act of what sound enables us to do politically, sociologically compassionately you know all of these ways in which listening makes us the thing that the creatures that we are um it's that really it's like trying to kind of create environments where um and perhaps at this point i can also cite the um amazing artist mira calix as well who, who very sadly has just passed away um and you know her work was really an amazing combination of music, sound, listening, joy, space, installation, and I think it's that kind of um, state of being that I'm really mm -hmm. uh, interested in in like getting more towards. And everything I've made has slightly done a bit of that. And yeah, I, I think I'm kind of working towards that on a larger scale. Um, so I'm interested to know a little bit about um, some of the relationships that you've developed in mm. theatre, which feel like your strongest collaborative relationships mm. um, uh, over the over the time that you've been making work. Yeah. Um, so my first kind of really strong relationships were with producers, actually. I mean, they were with, um, obviously with my collaborators, but I owe a lot to the belief that um, Kate McGrath and Louise Blackwell placed in me as a young artist and I'm aware that the relationship now I'm sort of working more in the mainstream industry and I actually have really never worked in the commercial sector so I, I haven't really tangled with what a producer means in that context but I'm aware that that's a very fraught relationship mm. um, but my experience of independent creative producers which is a bit more about artist development rather than screwing all of the money out of the budget, <laughs> um, has been really kind of formative. That's right. been a really a key thing. Um, one of the questions I'm asked most is, like, how do I find a producer? If you're, or, you know, to, to, if you're an artist or if you're a, a kind of sound designer who's got an idea for a piece that they want to make, and how do mm. I find a producer? And, and they are really good producers. They're like hen's teeth. They really are very rare. Um, but 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 if you can find that person, um, or even if you can have some, you know, some kind of preparatory conversations with them, even if that's not a sustaining relationship, that type of perspective on 
development. And I suppose this is more applicable if you're kind of an artist making work rather yeah, than being yeah, a sound yeah, designer yeah. on other people. So I'm aware that's kind of slight, slightly targeted. But um, those people were really key to, to me being able to ca- continue. Um, of course, then the relationship with Katie Mitchell is is a big one mm. um, because that's the longest collaborative relationship I've had. Uh, I think we've made about eight, nine shows now. Um, and how's that changed in that time, do you think? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... It's very familiar now. So in a sense, we, you know, and, and Katie has this with, with other people as well, I, I think. But um, we know each other's tastes. We know each what we're up to, what each other's is up to. So there's a sense of, of real, I think, for me, I feel like autonomy. I know, she, I know that she trusts what I do. And actually as we've we've we talk less and less it's yeah, kind of yeah, you know yeah. it becomes very we're just in the room doing our thing alongside each other yeah. yeah um and that's lovely i mean that's a lovely point to get to with with anyone isn't yeah, it yeah. um uh but that really doesn't happen until you've you know been through the mill and so the first you know the first shows that i worked on there was a lot of of feedback a lot of like oh are you sure you know she was testing me and yeah. and I was you know trying to rise to the occasion um and I really respect her as a maker and a thinker like she you know she's she's a a really extraordinary human and I think if you can find those relationships with people who are I mean, she's a bit scary as well. So that that helps, you know. So you've got this, you know, this sense of like you're you're on your metal and and in some ways for me that produced really great yeah. work yeah, because yeah. I was really didn't want to fail professionally, but I yeah. was also like oh, I really got to pull this out back. Yeah. That's stressful, but it's a great yeah. learning process. So don't be scared of that, I would say. Don't be um, scared of being scared of. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, being, yeah. Being held to your highest, Absolutely. to produce your highest work. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Just yeah. being the on the border. Can be good, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of like utter failure, yeah. you know, can <laughs> yeah, be yeah, yeah. surprisingly effective. <laughs> um, yeah, so that that's a great relationship. And then I suppose latterly over the last five or six years, I've I've got this wonderful collective of singers that now sing in all of the, the, the things that I make. They're all really different. Um, well, they, they, they have a lot in common, but their voices are quite uh, different from each other. But critically, they're really experimental. I mean, so, some of them are not, but um, they have just this lovely, generous spirit and... and Again, through process of repetition with each other, we've got to this point now where I can bring a set of ideas to the room and because the way I write music is partly traditionally notated and partly like instruction-based scores or graphic scores um, or just like here's an idea, improvise, um, there's a kind of there's a there's a kind of there's a shared language they sort of understand what yeah. i'm groping towards um and i that that's really lovely that's a really yeah it's so the things that all of those relationships have in common is kind of knowledge isn't it it's like time spent with those people in a room i try to i mean i really when i'm with my own work 
I know I'm responsible. I'm like the person who's brought everyone together. But I really try to make people feel like they're to honour them and to to give them space and to be kind and not make people work over their lunch breaks or <laughs> yeah, allow them yeah, yeah. to go home yeah. early if they don't feel yeah. well or just be really like human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think this is something we all know that we've got to get better at doing. Yeah, particularly in this industry. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but these, in these ways, and I think when you're starting out, it's such a great moment because you can really model the structures that you want to see. Yeah, yeah. And you can say, we're going to work four days. Or you can say, we're going to work, we're going to start at 10.30. Yeah. Um, we're going to do two session tech days. Yeah. You know, you can model all of these things. It becomes harder when you you get into these big, big structures. Mm. But this is how we build our muscles to change mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, those, those, those relationships that have meant the most to me, which sustain, address something about my life as well as my work as well they they give me some kind of satisfaction in the in my life as well as my work and i and i i care about them very much so you're spending a really intense amount of time with people mm -hmm. you're asking them to be extremely vulnerable you got to be careful about what you're putting people in and and what you're inadvertently putting people yeah. in so yeah those relationships that make the human project feel like it's progressing as well as the artistic project are the ones to keep hold of. So I think the interesting thing about this series is, is that we've um, got a number of people talking uh, about their practice from um, slightly more academic intellectual approaches like yourself to more technical uh, approaches or people who've come through sound departments and, 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 uh, and things like that. And, and one thing that we're, I'm kind of interested to ask each of the uh, people we're interviewing is is about people who are starting out in their career. Like, what what do you think is important from your point of view to develop as a practitioner uh, in whichever way that practitioner sits? Well, I mean, I, I do think it's worth bearing in mind that really lots of people, most people are kind of making it up as they go along to a certain extent, <laughs> maybe more so than others, but... Everyone is always learning and everyone is always slightly anxious about their status. So I think if you just kind of proceed on the basis that there's vulnerability in everyone, even though for some people it really doesn't look like it, <laughs> that's really helpful. Because yeah. it is true, I think, yeah. definitely. So as I kind of mentioned before, one of the ways in which I just learned about stuff was asking questions and being curious I am quite a shy one at heart, I think. So it wasn't always easy for me to say, mm, oh, how does mm. this work? How does this work? Yeah. I'm not like a kind of incessant chatterer. Mm. Um, but, you know, in my own way, I observed or kind of asked, you know, subtle questions. And I I overcame a lot of, you know, um, the, that kind of no knowledge barriers, I suppose, by, by being curious and asking questions. So... If you're if you're a bit shy like me, then I would say, you know, just steal yourself and ask the questions. If you're not, then go for it and ask all the questions. <laughs> Without being arrogant. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's really important to listen to lots of music, to watch lots of performances, to really sit and think, what is the artist trying to do? Like, what are they saying? What what how are they doing what they're doing? 
and and just being really kind of observant and and fundamentally completely non-judgmental. That's really important. Being non-judgmental about everything is the way that you learn more, I think. Of course, we have our tendencies and our tastes, but... And, you know, I'm not like a massive fan of um, Noel Coward, say, but, you know, I can still learn a lot by watching a play, in a, a brilliant production of a play like that. Perhaps I could just make a little side detour into kind of Europe there in the sense that sitting in an audience in Europe is a little bit of a different sensation to the UK because I think it's, tr- I think it's true to say that an audience in... European audiences are a lot more kind of leaning forward into the kind of, oh, what's the idea here? And if it's a conceptual idea that's not off-putting to them in the same way that it can be to UK audiences, they're a little, little, little bit kind of more uh, leaning back a little bit, Mm. I think, Mm -hmm. UK audiences. um, So you can kind of channel a European audience and sort of lean forward in your seat a little bit and think, well, what's what's happening here and, and how are they achieving it? Yeah, and I think, it's a really great critical faculty to kind of employ is really trying to analyse or listen for the thing that exists that's in front of you rather than like coming, you know, already having a lot of filters over the top of what you do or don't like. Um, that's just true of everything in life, I think. You know, read your whole email before replying to it. Kind <laughs> of um, I'm very guilty of that, so I'm not, I'm not moralising to anyone. Um I just, I suppose I kind of, like the other thing I suppose I wanted to say about like how to begin is that, as I kind of mentioned before, I spent a long, many, many years being a waitress when I first started. And um, there's a kind of a process when you first begin to make work or to kind of accept work or to, you know, put yourself out there. It's a bit like bushwhacking for a path, I think. There's going to be, it's like, what's, what's my path? And in the main, I think it's good to kind of gravitate towards projects that fulfill you or that seem creatively interesting. But there's going to be times when you have to pay your rent and mm-hmm. you can't not. You mm-hmm. just have to do shows. You have to accept jobs that you perhaps are not like wildly excited by. And that's fine. Don't sweat that. I think there's such a balance between survival and uh, contentment I yeah, suppose yeah. and the most important thing is that you keep going I mean yeah. it's really about that the the successful people are the people who just for whatever reason privileged or not just sustained yeah. they just carried on um, it's it's often not that they're the most um, talented ones although often in lots of ways they are of course yeah. um, but it's important that you keep going if it's what you believe in and what you want I remember reading a quote which is 90% of success is persistence. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, no, totally. And I have to kind of really remind myself of that. And I don't know what stupidity or what, but I somehow have managed to keep the flame, like to keep the... Nick Cave talks about that, doesn't he? About Mm -hmm. like holding the little candle in the palm of your hand, cupping it in the palm of your hand Mm -hmm. around with the wind blowing. And your job is just to keep the candle alive, to keep it lit. And that's that's what being an artist is, or that's what any kind of creative endeavor is, is just to like sustain that little flame and do whatever you need to do. And sometimes it means you have to do the Noel Coward play when you want to do <laughs> the, you know, experimental noise piece or whatever. But another big thing that I just don't know how to do, but I think is so great, is just not to compare yourself to other people. Mm. I think I mean I, I I'm not sure 
it's just it's such a kind of fruitless endeavor and i think it's so hard with social media because everyone's always popping up saying i'm doing this i'm doing this and it's you know it can be very isolating to think of like oh i haven't been haven't been asked to do something or look at that person they've got that and you know I know we all talk we talk about this a little bit well we're all talking about this but it's just you know you're you are enough you just keep that flame and so great to not compare yourself if at all possible um the other thing I think is quite good although I'm not sure how many other people would recommend this is to um Find directors that you like the work of and make connections with them. I certainly remember when I left Central, um, we sustained each other for quite a long time, actually, Mm -hmm. by going to see each other's stuff or being in each other's stuff. Um, And, you know, so that was was really important. And then, you know, as we've talked about it's it's there's a lot of trust involved in making theatre and if you find those good relationships you you, people tend to stick with them because it's just such a shorthand for making the next piece so if you can find a make a kind of alliance with a director that you know you have a shared aesthetic or a a shared sense of kind of what theatre means or I think that's a really great that can be a really great start. And and I think that's a little bit intimidating in some ways, or can be. But, you know, if you're if you're kind of uh, leaving your education with your peers, some of whom are directors, some of whom are mm. performers, some of whom are sound makers, you know, it's really great to kind of keep connected to those people. Yeah, yeah, and then just to go and watch lots of stuff and think, oh, that director's a really interesting person. I'm going to write to them and say, I really enjoyed this work. I... I really enjoyed the way that that, that you use sound to yeah. tell your stories or whatever, whatever. And I think the then the adjunct to that piece of advice is just to know thyself. Like, you know, we've had this lovely conversation now about how did it start, what, what tastes, how did they emerge, you know, what's the aesthetic. It's really to discover that for yourself. Yeah. That's a, pro, that's a life process. Yeah. <laughs> that's not going to be solved in the first five or even 10 or even 20 years maybe. But... Um, but you are, but you are, you, you, so recognizing who you are at any singular point, yeah. because it's, you shouldn't also, I would suggest, become defeated by the fact that you're never going to know who you are until the end of your life. You've got to know who you are at that particular point and realize that might continue or will continue to change. Yeah, that's um, a great point. Yeah. yeah, it's a process, definitely. Mm. And things will become more or less of priorities to you. Mm-mm-mm, yeah. Melanie Wilson, thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. This podcast was produced and edited by Peter Rice, a sound designer, educator and member of the Association of Sound Designers Board. This series is kindly supported by the Association of Sound Designers, the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama and the National Theatre Sound Department.